0: In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is God's word. Have you ever thought while you're in a public restroom, if I can just get out of here Without touching anything, I may not get sick during the holidays. Have you ever tried to help a child get through a public restroom without touching anything? It's almost impossible. Um, we, we tend to think, we, we think this way, that if we can avoid outside corrupting influences, we will somehow be pure. More pure, less corrupt than we'd like. Or the people we love and are trying to protect, they'll be less corrupt Uh, if we can somehow uh, prevent those outside influences from affecting us. If you think of the movie, What About Bob? Bob Wiley uh, is a germaphobe, and and he walks around with a tissue. He will not not shake your hand. He will not touch a doorknob unless he has this tissue in his hand. Parents try to protect their children, obviously, from germs that corrupt them. Not only from germs, but from other kids who can be a bad influence on them. Right now in our world, nations, governments are asking, if we let refugees through our borders, will that have a damaging, corrupting influence upon our society, upon our people? This account in Mark chapter 7, of all the dialogues between Jesus and the Pharisees, This is the longest recorded argument in Mark's gospel. Mark Mark spilled more ink over this debate between Jesus and his religious opponents than any other argument he had with them. Mark thought there was something really important in this account that he wanted people to remember of all the things that the Lord taught, of all his debates with the religious establishment of his day. Jesus makes a point that is central to, to understanding Christianity. It's not what goes into you that corrupts you. It's what comes out of you. The cleanest look may hide the dirtiest heart, but the gospel offers true purity. And today I want to talk about three things, the cleanest look, the dirtiest heart, and the purest sacrifice. Now, the Pharisees, uh, they presented to society a clean look, a well-kept life of deeds and behaviors and procedures and codes. Now, to explain what's going on here, we have to go back. We have to talk about the, the historical background. About 14, 1,500 years before Jesus, God gave Israel the law. Through Moses the prophet, the Mosaic law, God gave Israel the law. Now, there are, there are three aspects to the law, the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. I'm not going to talk about the civil today. just want to talk about two aspects of the law that God gave the Israelites through Moses, the moral law and the ceremonial law. Now, the moral law was always binding everywhere upon everyone. Okay? Concepts like there are no other gods. You will have no other gods before me. Worship only me. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. These were absolute. These were universal. Wherever you were, wherever you lived, whatever you were doing. The moral law. There's also the ceremonial law. The The ceremonial law helped Israel to apply the moral law in various circumstances in life in very practical things. For instance, because God is holy and living among you, his pre- he is among you and he is holy and you are to have no other gods before you, if you touch the carcass of a dead animal, wash yourself, okay? Very practical laws that would help Israel apply the truth of the moral law to circumstances in their lives. Now, the best way to, well, this is a good way to understand the relationship between the moral law and the ceremonial law. Imagine, uh, you know, maybe you say to your kid Saturday night, listen, we've got worship, we're going to church tomorrow, I want you to take a shower, I want you to scrub your body with soap, turn the water on in the shower, use soap, scrub yourself, get clean, and in the morning I want you to wear nice clothes, okay, because we're going to church Now, what you have there is an outward ritual, okay, that that a good parent would probably wisely institute, right, in order to help the child appreciate the importance of worshiping God, okay? The important law is not scrubbing yourself and wearing decent clothes in order to go to church, The important thing is honoring and worshiping the one true God. But this outward ritual may be instituted by a parent to help the child develop the right heart condition before God. That's how the ceremonial law supported the moral law. Now, by the time of the Jewish rabbis, the Jewish rabbis over the centuries by the time of Jesus Christ had developed what we call an oral tradition or the tradition of the elders, as you see here in Mark chapter 7. And the oral tradition was developed over the centuries by Jewish leaders to apply the ceremonial law in every possible life circumstance you could imagine. Mark sheds light on it here in verses 3 and 4. Remember, Mark is likely... In Rome, writing this gospel, and so he's writing to predominantly a Gentile audience who may not understand Jewish practices and customs. So he goes out of his way in these parentheses to explain what's going on to people who would not have known. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Now, you may think, hey, that's just good parenting. Wash your hands before you eat. That's not what we're talking about here. Holding to the tradition of the elders... And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Notice it says when they come from the marketplace, they would wash themselves and they would wash everything. Because who is in the the marketplace? Gentiles were in the marketplace. Right? And so they had to clean themselves ceremonially before they did any of these things. So they asked Jesus in verse 5, Hey, uh, what, what are your disciples, uh, why are they eating without washing their hands? What are these fishermen doing not washing before they eat? But, you know, in the Old Testament, washing your hands, you, you almost never see it in the actual law, even the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. The priests had to wash themselves before they went into the tabernacle. And, and you, if you're a common person in, in Israel, you had to wash yourself if you touched a dead body or if you touched a, um, um, a bodily discharge. But over time, the rabbis considered their oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, they called it a fence around the Torah, a fence around God's law. And if you read the Mishnah, It it actually looks like that. You have the oral tradition written like a box all the way around uh, the Mosaic Law. They believed it was a fence around the Torah to protect the Torah's the laws purity, as the Jews had to live in a Gentiles world. Now the Pharisees prided themselves on keeping the tradition of the elders, not the Torah. Not the law of the Old Testament, but the tradition of the elders, their tradition, their, their moral code. Okay. It was many, many, many centuries later that John Calvin would say this about plausible traditions that go too far. Because okay. the intent of many of these codes was good. Okay. But John Calvin said something about a good plausible tradition that goes too far. He says it goes too far when they are imagined to be necessary to the worship of God. And thus, there is a departure from sincere obedience to God alone, and a snare is laid for the conscience. So the Pharisees had the cleanest look because they successfully kept their own law that they had created they conformed to their own law and succeeded in it. And so they had this look of outward cleanliness, but they forced other people to hold to their code. Okay? They kept their requirements and they forced other people to keep those requirements as well. And by doing that, they would ensnare people. They would ensnare people's consciences. You know, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, it has a book of church order. It's kind of like a a denomination-wide bylaw, uh, like bylaws. And one of the first principles in our bylaws as a denomination is that God alone is Lord of the conscience. We don't get to control one another's consciences. God alone gets to do that. But what John Calvin said was, good traditions go too far. When we use our traditions, when we use our personal written codes that we've created to bind each other's consciences before God. And so they would ensnare people's consciences to keep their oral tradition of the elders. So they say to Jesus, look, you and your followers are not conforming to our cleanliness code. Now Jesus, despite their squeaky clean religious appearance, Jesus reveals the dirtiness of their hearts. He calls them hypocrites. He just comes out and says, You guys are hypocrites. You guys are phonies. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 29 This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is basically saying, Hey, you know, this this tradition of the elders thing you've got going on, it has stolen your hearts away from God's glory and honor in the society and in your lives. You care so much about your code that you let people break God's code in order to follow your own. And Jesus proves this with this example of what is called Corbin. It simply meant an offering. The word Corbin meant an offering. And here's how it worked. Scholars, it's kind of ambiguous. Scholars don't know a whole lot about this, but this is kind of how Corbin worked. You could dedicate, by vow, by a religious vow, you could dedicate your possessions, your property, your assets to the temple for God's use. You didn't actually have to give it over. You just had to declare your assets, Corbin offered to the temple, to God's service. And it was a vow that that the oral tradition would not allow you to break. You had to pay, financially pay to break the vow. And by making this vow of Corban, you essentially banned your relatives from any of your property or assets. So by declaring something Corban, you're basically saying to your relatives and to your next of kin, all of my possessions and my assets are off limits to you. They belong to the temple now. And historians, what Jesus is getting at here is, people were actually abusing this system to their own gain by by making it impossible for their relatives to get a hold of their assets. It was a religious way of advocating your responsibility to your family. And so Jesus is saying, look, the law of Moses, the Old Testament says, the moral law of God says, honor your father and mother. But in order to keep this vow, you guys are actually breaking God's law. And that was, that was his proof, right? He says, he says you're supposed to honor your parents, but by holding to this Corbin code, you actually do just the opposite. And, and Jesus is basically saying, look, you've got bigger problems than dirty hands. Your hearts are filthy. You are dirty at the core of your soul. And he goes on to say, and he didn't just say this to them. This was so important to Jesus. It was so important that he got this message across that he gathered the crowd. He wanted everybody to hear this. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality and theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's a popular thought in our world today that people are born good or at least born morally neutral and over time, over influences from society and family and human interaction and tragedy and discouragement, we become wicked, we become evil, we're corrupted by social influences in the world around us. Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus is saying here, there's something inherently wrong with us from the inside. And that's actually what makes us unacceptable to God. That's what actually corrupts us. It's something going on inside. So I want to encourage you today that it would do us good not only as individual people, but as a faith community, it would do us good to examine our dirty hearts. Just examine our dirty hearts and (laughs) recognize that we're far more filthy than we want to admit we are and humble ourselves. Examine our dirty hearts and humble ourselves in light of God's perfection. Some sins are very obvious. Jesus mentions them. Murder. Theft, adultery, right? Now, if he just tried to go after the Pharisees, he'd get nowhere, and he knew that because they had squeaky clean lives of behavior. They weren't committing these atrocities. But Jesus went further than that. He, he also lists sins that are far more subtle. Evil thoughts, deceit, envy, pride. These are things that maybe people don't recognize until you're squeezed like that tube of toothpaste. And when you're squeezed, what's on the inside of you comes out, revealing just how corrupt you are. And that's what Jesus is saying. And now pride is one of those subtle sins that's on the inside. And I think that's exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes were struggling with. It was pride, okay? They kept their own code, but they judged other people for breaking it. You know, we all live by codes. We all live by unwritten personal codes that we create and then judge one another when other people break our own codes. And so I want to I I open this up for conversation for a second. What do you think about this? Can you identify any codes by which we pride ourselves for keeping and judge others for breaking? And just to give you an example, I'll use myself. I have this unwritten code. I've discovered it in recent years. I love keeping an orderly, up-to-date calendar. It is so important for me to keep an accurate calendar because it helps me keep my commitments and it helps me honor my commitments with other people. helps me keep on task throughout the week and throughout my life, and it helps me honor my commitments to other people because I tend to be a people pleaser, okay? Now, my wife, Becky, Becky and I don't share the same zeal for calendar keeping. We don't share the same perspective on this thing. So I developed a whole system with iCalendar so that every device in the house can be synced with events, with responsibilities, well, we have a different perspective on what calendar keeping is all about. And, and for a while, I discovered painfully that I would get angry with my wife when she wouldn't put something on, on a calendar or wouldn't update the iCalendar system or put something on the calendar that's hanging on the fridge. I would get angry if a discrepancy in our calendar keeping would mess up my day or mess up my life or mess up some commitment that I had with somebody else. And I realized that in my pride for perfect calendar keeping, I was getting angry with my wife and judging her. And I realized that my personal code, my personal self-written law of, of clean calendar keeping was actually causing me to break God's commandment to love my wife as I love myself. So what do you think? And, and, and I'm not asking for stories. I get to tell a story because I'm speaking. I'm just asking for some examples. Could you identify a code by which we pride ourselves for keeping and judge other people for breaking? What do you think? Yeah. Being on time. And depending on the culture you're in, that can be very different. Westerners are, you got to be on time. And even the older generations are much more, you got to be on time. Even you got to be early. If you go to the Middle East, uh, what's being on time. It, it's irrelevant. What else? That's a great example, being on time. What else? Recycling. That's awesome. Good. That, that's right. That's right. We do judge one another for how environmentally conscious or unconscious we are. What else? Intelligence. Yes. I'm smarter than you. I'm more able to comprehend things than you are. Absolutely. Some people are, um, some people have an intelligence code. Good. I saw another hand. Being reliable, being, reliable. being dependable. I'm dependable. Why can't you be? What else? Dressing appropriately. Dressing appropriately. Yeah, Exactly. Do people own socks or, or I do today, I, own so- I wear socks today. I may not have them on in the summer. That's a good point. How do I dress to work? How do I dress to worship? Somebody in the back. No? Driving on the right side of the road. Absolutely. Every Different regions in the country I've lived in, everybody has their own driving sins you know in that particular area and judge people from other parts of the country for driving differently one more yeah that's excellent yeah if 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 you are if you're family centric if 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 you make a big deal out of family connections family history and family traditions you could love those traditions so much that you judge others for not having those traditions or you punish others for not appreciating your traditions. Well said, one more. Thank you notes. <laughs> like, I did something for that person, how come I never got a thank you note? I am one of the worst at remembering to give people thank you notes. So if, you're, if you have that type of a code, you're probably really angry with me. <laughs> I, I really find it fascinating that nobody said, well, committing adultery or lying, because everybody knows that. But look at all these unwritten codes we've created by which we pride ourselves in keeping and judge other people for breaking. Code keeping reveals that our hearts are actually filthy. That's Jesus' whole point, is that the code keeping reveals the filthy, filthy nature of our hearts. And the Bible calls it idolatry. Remember, he quotes Isaiah. He's saying, look, you act like you're close to God, but your hearts are very far away. And the Bible says when your heart is far away from God, when you replace God's place, God's right place in your heart with something else or anyone else, you've got an idol. Pastor Tim Keller likes to say that an idol is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Everything you mentioned are good things. Family tradition, being on time, using iCalendar appropriately. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, you're worshiping something and it's not God. And that's what Jesus was saying. And the proof was their code keeping. And that was the Pharisees' problem. But I hope you see it's your problem too. It's our problem. It was the Apostle Paul who said to his friend Timothy, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Their consciences are defiled, he said. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So it turns out, according to the Bible, that we're not unworthy in the presence of a holy, perfect God because of what we do. We're unworthy because of why we do what we do. It's, it's not our actions and behaviors and what, and what is on the outside and what comes into us that causes our filthiness in the presence of God. Right? Those are just the results. It's the cause. It's the cause. It's what's inside that makes us unclean before a perfect God. But here's the, I mentioned the word gospel before, which again, I'm going to keep saying this, it means good news. And here's the good news of the gospel of Christianity. And this is the essence of Christianity, that there is a pure sacrifice, the purest sacrifice that cleanses us if we trust in this sacrifice by faith. Jesus Also lived by a code. Jesus was not lawless. Some people use this passage to support antinomianism, meaning since God is so great and gracious, we don't need to abide by anything. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus lived by a code. The code Jesus lived by was to love his Father, his Heavenly Father, more than anything and more than anyone, and to love his neighbor as himself. And by the way, If you boil the entire Old Testament down, that's God's code. That is the code our creator has established by which his creatures should live by. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love each other as you love yourself. That is the only code God requires of his creatures. And that was the code that Jesus, unlike me and you and Adam and Eve, Jesus kept it perfectly. Jesus was so committed to God's code, to this code, that he followed it to the cross. He was so faithful to this code that it led him, his faithfulness to this code led him to his own death. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews could say with full confidence, we read this earlier this morning, the blood of goats and bulls, now this is, this is the ceremonial system of the Old Testament, the ceremonial law. The blood of goats and bulls And so the only remedy for our inward idolatrous filth is the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus offers it to the most prideful, code-keeping, pharisaic person. And he offers it to the most lustful porn addict. He offers it to everyone. The cleanest look may hide the dirtiest heart. But Jesus Christ purifies you. Once once you really can comprehend your own filth, I'm not trying to beat you up. We're not about beating each other up. We're about being realistic. Once you comprehend your own filth, In comparison to the purity of Jesus who became filthy for you, who took your disease upon himself and became sick. Once you comprehend his purity compared to your own filth, well, now you can humble yourself, right? Now we can humble ourselves in light of the goodness and holiness of Jesus Christ who became filthy for you. And once you're humble... Well, now you can be thankful. Now you can say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that for me. I was filthy. I know I still am filthy. But you've made me clean. You've washed me in your blood. And maybe you've never done that. Well, you can do it. You can ask Jesus to purify you by the power of his sacrifice. Once you're thankful, now you can can regard other people with understanding, right? Once you know how filthy you are, you're not as intimidated and prideful over the filthiness of other people. And you can say, you know, Jesus got close to my filth in order to save me. Well, now your filth, it's outside of me. It can't corrupt me if I don't let it corrupt me. Who I am is something on the inside. And the Bible says, I am Jesus Christ because Jesus died for me. I died on the cross with Jesus. And the new life I live, I live for Christ. So your filth cannot corrupt me if I don't let it. Okay? And now we can look at one another with understanding and go, yeah, you just broke my secret code, but you know what? I'm a filthy sinner too. And Jesus came close to me to save me. My filth didn't scare him away. Well, you know what? I'm not going to be afraid of your filth. And and, and I'm going to pray that you're not afraid of mine. And now maybe without judgmental hearts, we can get close enough to each other to help one another. And we can get close enough to the society in which we live to show people that we're not just trying to keep rules. We're filthy sinners who have been cleansed by a perfect God, and now we want to share the hope that we have with the people around us. And that's how it all works. Um, let's pray. Father, we repeat the words of the tax collector who sat in the synagogue and wouldn't even look up to heaven and said, Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. We ask for the humility to see our own inward spiritual filth and idolatry. And Father, give us the faith to rely upon the cleansing power of Jesus, whether it's continuing as a Christian in faith or whether it's trusting in Jesus for the very first time. And Father, in faith, we denounce the attitude of that Pharisee who sat on the other side of the synagogue and said, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that guy over there. Father, we ask as a church that... We wouldn't have that mentality. Forgive us for having it. Cleanse us. Purify us by the power of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.